in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at the all of chapter 3 this morning, so buckle up. We're about ready to roll here. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 3, just, uh, just thought I'd share with you that there's a lot of things that I actually really, really love about sermon preparation. I mean, I love the fact that I get the honor of being able to slow down and basically spend my week just churning over a passage of Scripture, just reading it over and over again and mulling on it and meditating on it and just thinking deeply about it is really just an incredible blessing. I mean, I love the chance I just get to dig deep. I get to, like, look at words and do some word studies and figure out what do all these words mean and what is going on here. And I, can I tell you, every time that I get to come and preach, I always discover something new in the word that I had never seen before. And that's an incredible blessing. I love that I get to do all these things within sermon prep. I love that I get to read commentaries and read about guys who are so much wiser than I am and just to glean their insights and see what they have to say about the Word. But I will tell you, there is one thing that I do not love about sermon prep, and that is this right here, coming up with the introduction. Can I tell you, like, Ryan is like an introduction wizard. I don't know how he does what he does. I just, I struggle with it. I'm not that creative. And so it's actually really hard for me to come up with good introductions, good illustrations. It's just hard for me to do that. And introductions can be really important. I mean, the point of the introduction is not only to help you just kind of get engaged here this morning, but introductions are meant to be a connector. They're meant to be a bridge. They are meant to help set up the biblical content of the passage of what we're looking at. And just to kind of help prepare our minds for that. Now, I will tell you that sometimes uh, those introductions can come more naturally than others, and most of the time, they just don't. They, they, are, they are just hard. And let's admit, if you've known me very long, you kind of know where I usually go for sermon intros, Right? Whether it be a Star Wars movie or a superhero movie or some other movie or growing up in the 70s and 80s, I know I'm a little redundant and I, I get that. Um, I recognize that flaw in me. Um, and so I know that that can sound really repetitive sometimes. So yes, coming up with a sermon intro is not my favorite part of sermon prep at all. Yet today here in Acts chapter 3, I believe that Peter gives us the sermon introductions of all sermon introductions. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure that anyone has given a better sermon introduction than Peter does here in our passage in Acts chapter 3 because Peter chooses to heal a guy who has been lame from birth. And at the result of this act, what happens is a crowd gathers around to see what's happening, and Peter takes full advantage of this situation and delivers this sermon about Jesus, about the one who actually performed this healing. And this is just a fantastic sermon introduction. Let's go heal a guy, let's gather a crowd, and let's pre preach Jesus about it all. And as fantastic as this sermon intro is here, Peter goes on to deliver an even better sermon in verses 12 through 16. As one commentator put it, he believes that this sermon here in Acts chapter 3 is the most Christocentric or Christ-centered sermon in the whole book of Acts. It's all about Jesus. So what I want us to do this morning is to take time to not only look at the sermon introduction, but then to also look at the sermon itself 
And so that we can see just how much both of these events are all about Jesus. That this chapter is all about the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. So what we want to do is we want to see this. Hopefully we'll see this in this chapter. And as a result of seeing this in the chapter, the desired goal is that it would bring a change in our life. My hope is for us this morning, our prayer is, is that Jesus would become more central and supreme in our lives as well. So I know I just prayed, but can we just kind of pray to that end now? Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Acts chapter 3. This is an incredible chapter in the Bible. And I just pray that we would be just richly encouraged from it this morning. And I pray that most of all, you would help us see Jesus. Pray that you would help us see him as supreme and central in all of things. That we would just be blown away by the greatness of who Jesus is. And that we would leave here today with Jesus, with more of Jesus in our hearts and our lives. Holy Spirit, please come and work these things. I pray this in your name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to do is look at the healing itself. The healing is found is found in Luke in I'm sorry in Acts written by Luke in chapter three verses one through ten. I'm gonna just read this now if you want to follow along with me in your Bible. It says now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his eyes, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were both were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, here's some brief observations I just want to make in this part here. One is that this man, it, it tells us, has been lame from birth. So this man has been totally helpless from the day he was born. He's never taken a step in his entire life, and he's totally dependent upon others. And you see it daily, people had to carry him to the temple gate. Daily, he was asking for alms, begging from others to give him some money. And then what do we see? We see Peter and John, they walk into the temple, and they pass by this man, and this man asks Peter and John for money, and this man gets Peter and John's attention. And then Peter delivers this famous line in verse 6, right? I love this line, where he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And unbeknownst to this man, he is about to receive the most valuable gift he has ever been given in his entire life. Because this man doesn't get just a handout. Instead, he gets a healing. 
His ankles and his feet are completely and instantly strong. I mean, this guy doesn't need any rehab. He doesn't need any physical therapy to learn how to walk. Remember, this is a guy who's never taken a step in his life, and immediately he's standing, he's walking, he's even leaping. I mean, it's incredible to see the full effect of the way this miracle took place in this man's life. And this is one powerful sermon introduction. And it's so powerful that I think there are even things that we can take away from this passage just right here. First, is there is a difference between what this man thought he needed the most and what Peter knew this man really needed the most. This man thought he needed silver or gold. He thought he needed money. But Jesus knew what he really needed, or Peter knew what he really needed, that Peter needed Jesus. And that's a good thing to think about, right? Like how often when we go through life, and we go through problems, and we go through difficulties, and we go through hard times, and we think what will be the best thing for the solution for that problem. It could be money, right? We just think if we just had more money, man, that would solve all my problems. Or that I just need this relationship, whether it be my spouse or someone in my family. That, like, I just need this, and this will make the solution. This is the solution to the problem. This will make everything better. Or maybe it's a different job. Or maybe it's um, a better education or more knowledge. Like, if we just understand the problem better, we'll be able to solve it and we'll be able to figure it out. I mean, I think we look to so many different places to be the solution that we think will solve the problems that we have. But Peter is pointing out to us that it is not the stuff of earth that we need to fix our brokenness. We need something bigger. And the only thing that is big enough to solve the problems of life that we have is Jesus. Jesus may be all that Peter had, but Jesus is all that Peter needed. And Jesus is all that we need as well. Second thing I want us to see here is once this lame man is healed, he sees the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And that what naturally flows out of that is this joyful worship. I mean, it says twice in verse 8 and 9 that this man is just leaping. He's going around praising God. And you get the sense that he's just doing this over and over. He is totally just joyfully worshiping God for what has happened to him. And when you truly see the supremacy of Jesus over all things, what naturally will flow out is joyful, continual worship of him. I mean, nobody's forcing this guy to do this. It's not like Peter said to him, hey, okay, now that you're healed, what you should do next is worship God. It's, it, he just naturally does this. It just freely, naturally, unashamedly flows out of him. He is not doing this out of some sense of duty, like, okay, healed, check. Oh, worship, check. I'll go do that now. No, he is happy to worship, and joyful worship is what should flow out of us. I mean, when we think of what Jesus has done for us, his saving work that we just sang about this morning, and just think about all the ways that Jesus has been faithful to us, all the ways that we have seen Jesus just faithfully be there for us and his provision for us in our lives. I mean, what should flow out of us as well is this joyful worship of him because of what he has done. But thirdly, I think our joyful worship will lead to this natural witness for Christ to the world around us. 
I mean, do you notice what's happening here? The crowd is gathering because this guy is leaping up and down and praising God. This must have been quite a scene in the temple. Most of the people know who this guy is. And now here he is jumping up and down, praising God, and this crowd begins to come around him. And this crowd begins to wonder what is taking place. This crowd is wanting to say, what is happening? You know, it says it over and over again. It says in verse 9 that the people saw him worshiping God, and they're filled with wonder and amazement, it says in verse 10. And it also says that the people are astounded by all that is taking place in this moment in verse 11. And what this is telling us is that our joyful worship of Jesus in front of a lost world can make a huge impact to those around us. You know, this guy who just been healed, he does not have all of his theology figured out, which sometimes we think we need in order to be a witness for Jesus. This guy is just happy in God because he's been healed. I remember when, uh, some of you may know that our oldest son, Joel, he was, he was really sick when he was born. He spent his first 22 days at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. And he was a pretty sick little dude for a while, and we just didn't quite know what was going to happen. But the Lord was gracious and good in provision uh, for him. And every day when Mandy and I would go up to the hospital in order to go see Joel and spend time with him, we always had to check in at the front desk. And there was always this nurse, the same nurse. She was there every day, and we always would meet her when we would check in. And towards the end of Joel's time there, the nurse just one day just stopped us as we were signing in and checking in and getting to go back in to see him. She was like, man, you guys are always really happy. And we just took that moment there, like, kind of caught us off guard. But we were just like, you know, man, God is good. I mean, God is just really, really good. And we didn't, like, can I tell you, I didn't think we were always that happy because I remember every day trying to get to the hospital was super stressful uh, just because we were just so busy with everything that was taking place in that moment. And yet when we see God move, and when we see God work, what should flow out of us as well is this joyful worship of Him. And that when we joyfully worship Him, that it has this ability to make this great impact to the world around us. And that is just the sermon intro. Now, this is all leading up to this moment where Peter preaches this sermon itself. Because as great as this healing was, and this healing was really great, What's about to come next is even more significant. Peter takes full advantage of the situation that he sees that is happening around him. The crowd has gathered, and he is here to say the main point of the healing. He is saying, here's the bridge, here's the connecting point. The main point of the healing is to point to the one who did this healing. He's wanting to point the crowd to Jesus. Because just as this lame man needed this physical healing the crowd needs a spiritual healing. Because you see, Jesus is not just the healer of feet and ankles. Jesus is the healer of broken and sinful souls. And I want us to see just the parallel between these two things. I mean, this layman, it says that he has been in this condition since he was born. And he's in bondage to his condition. And he is helpless and hopeless in his physical condition and in the same way spiritually we are exactly the same we are born into our sinful condition and we are in bondage to our sinful condition and we are helpless and hopeless 
in our sinful condition. And just as Jesus was the only solution for this man who was born lame, so Jesus is only the spiritual solution for us who are born in sin. And so Peter brings this Christ-centered sermon to the crowd. And this sermon can really be broken down mainly into two main points. The first one is in verses 11 through 12, or 11, I'm sorry, 11 through 16, where Peter explains just exactly who this Jesus is. And then in the rest of it, in verses 17 through 26, Peter takes the time to explain what it is that Jesus has done. Peter's main goal of this sermon is for Jesus to be in front and center of everything. And I hope we can see this as we unpack this sermon. So let me first now read verses 11 through 16 for us. And while he clung to Peter and John, and all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them into the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you. So what Peter does first in his sermon, the very first thing that Peter does is Peter is wanting to deflect all attention off of him. Peter is saying, hey, I am not the center of the story here. He's saying, it is not by me, it is not by the power of Peter that this man is healed. He is wanting to get himself out of the spotlight and back into the distance because what he wants to focus on, that it was Jesus is the one who healed this man. That God was the one that worked in Jesus, and Jesus is the one who did this. And the question becomes, well, how could Jesus do this? I mean, he's not even physically here. How could this healing take place by Jesus? And that's why I think Peter is anticipating, and that's why Peter takes the time to go into how is it that Jesus is able to heal this man? And what he does is he goes right back to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, just like he did in chapter 2 when Ryan unpacked that a couple of weeks ago. I mean, as a matter of fact, you look at the sermon that Peter preaches in chapter 2, and then the one he preaches again here in chapter 3, it's all very similar. Peter uses a lot of the same language in both of these sermons about Jesus. And it shows us just how central the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is for Peter. And this is something really important for us to see. It's because of the truth, of the reality, of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that gives Jesus the ability to do everything. That if Jesus indeed did die and raise again, then Jesus does indeed have the power to heal this man who's been lame from birth and, as we're going to see pretty soon, also has the power to heal and save our souls. And this is what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. 
He's going to preach the same message here today. And we're going to see it again and again and again in the book of Acts. Over and over, the central message that they preach is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. It's incredibly redundant how much we're going to see this message over and over again. It's the central moment in all of history, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And it is the central moment for all those who believe in him. Everything hangs and hinges on the truth of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter continues to unpack this picture of Jesus and how he describes Jesus in the following verses. He gives several names to Jesus in the next several verses. In verse 13, Peter talks of Jesus as the servant. And as he talks about Jesus as the servant, Peter talks about Jesus and the crucifixion and his death. And what Peter is indicating here is he's making a connection to the crowd here and saying that Jesus is the suffering servant that the Old Testament was talking about. Isaiah 53, most famous passage that talks about this suffering servant that was fulfilled in Christ and his death on the cross. And that's what Peter is connecting to these people, that Jesus is this one that has come to suffer. But not only that, in verse 14, it tells us that Jesus is also the holy and righteous one, which is what qualified Jesus to go to the cross and to be our sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice was needed that we could not provide, but Jesus did. And the reason Jesus did is because he is the holy and righteous one. He's the holy and righteous one who took the place of not only the murderer in Barabbas, but also the guilty one in us as well. And then in verse 15, Peter says that Jesus is also the author of life, which is why death cannot defeat him, why death could not hold him down, and why Jesus was able to raise from the dead because he is the author of life. And not only that, that Jesus is the one that is also now has the power to give life to others as well. And Peter tells us in this name, in verse 16, where it says, by his name, by faith in his name, that in this name, this name of Jesus, the author of life, the holy and righteous one, the suffering servant, that this man is healed. This is who Jesus is. But that's not all that the name of Jesus can do. And that's what Peter unpacks for us in verses 17 through 26. Let's continue to read this sermon. And he says, But now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. 
You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So let's look at how Peter continues to proclaim the centrality of Christ in this message. First, I love what Peter is doing here in verse 17. Notice what he says. He's affirming that these are the ones who are associated with the death of Jesus. I mean, that's what he said earlier in the first part of the passage, right? He said back in first, verse 13, he said, you are the one that delivered Jesus and you are the ones who denied Jesus. In verse 14, again, it says, you are the ones that deny Jesus, and you are the ones that ask for the murderer Barabbas. And then in verse 15, it says, you are the one who killed Jesus. I think what Peter is doing is he's looking at his Jewish crowd that he is talking to, and I would imagine that some of those people in that crowd were in that same crowd in front of Pilate that were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Some of these people in this crowd were probably part of that group that walked by Christ as he was crucified and mocked at him. They didn't directly condemn him to death, but they were indirectly condemning him. And then verse 17 here, he says that you did all this in ignorance. He's saying you did not have eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is. Yet Peter is holding them responsible for the death of Jesus, and he's not going to allow this ignorance to be an excuse. But what comes next is amazing, isn't it? Because Peter's ready to extend grace of Jesus to the people who did all of this to Jesus. And this is an incredible picture of grace that he's extending. It's not like saying, hey, you did all this for Jesus, and you're in big trouble now. He said, you did this, but guess what? There is grace. There is forgiveness for you. And I just want us to think about this, that if there was enough grace for people in the crowd that he was preaching to here in Acts chapter 3, there's more than enough grace for the people that are in this room this morning. So if you're struggling to believe that Jesus would be someone that would die for someone like you, can I just encourage you, that let this passage just really speak to you, encourage you. Let this passage remove any struggle that you may have about this idea of forgiveness that God can extend to you. Because look at this salvation that Peter describes in our key verses here in 19 to 20. Look at what it says here. It says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel right here. This is what salvation in Jesus is all about. First is the call to repent and turn again. This is actually a two-part call that is supposed to be done in one motion. The first part is to repent, which means to turn back and to change one's mind. That for here, in this context, this is a call to repent and turn away from your sin. To change your mind about your sin and to denounce and to walk away from your sin. 
But that's only part of it. Because Peter also says that we are to turn again. That once you turn away from something, you have to turn towards something as well. You just don't stop at the turn. You head in a different direction instead. And Peter is calling us to turn to the direction of Jesus and walk to him and affirm Jesus and run to him. That repentance is not just a turning away from sin, but it's turning in a new direction and turning and walking to Jesus as well. And for those who repent and turn again, the result is this beautiful new reality in which we live in. First, it says that your sins may be blotted out. Now, I know in our modern mind, when we think of the idea of sin being blotted out, I think it may be a leaky pen, right? That you're right, you ever get one of those leaky pens and it just blots all over and it's a mess and it makes this, this big stain and you're like, oh, what am I going to do? And I think that's, at least that's what I think of when I read that, that sin should be blotted out. I think of that. But that's not what Peter is going after here. That's not what he's communicating because in his time, when you would write, when, when the writers would write on papyrus, right? That's what they used to write on. And as they are writing, the ink would not soak into the paper. It actually would just remain just on the surface. And so what would happen is, is if you blotted some water on that ink, on that paper, guess what happens? The ink would just disappear. It would, would wash away and it would be gone. This is the imagery that Peter is wanting to communicate to the crowd and to us as well. And this is what he wants us to have in mind. That in Jesus, that our sins have been wiped out. It's not an ugly ink smear on the paper. It's actually that they have been washed away. They've been washed away to the point that there's no trace of it ever been there. This is what it means, that your sins have been completely removed. All the bad is gone. But that's not all, because look at what Peter goes on to say in verse 20 here. What he talked about the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The times of refreshing come because Jesus has come. Forgiveness has been given. The sin has been removed. And now God is near the relationship has been restored. Because of Jesus, we are not at odds with God anymore. The hostility has been removed. All of the tension, all of the friction, all of the distance is taken away. You see, that's what sin does. Sin has this weighing down effect on us. And it wears you down, it steals your joy, and it drains the life out of you. And it creates this fractured relationship with God. But then Jesus comes and he has this lifting up effect and he brings sweet relief because the burden of your sin has been taken away and it's gone. Because repentance always leads to refreshment. I know in a lot of ways repentance kind of gets a bad rap, doesn't it? Like when we think of repentance, we think of this idea that I got to hang my head in shame and I'm kind of dragging my feet and I'm like, I'm sorry, I blew it again. At least that's the way I think of repentance a lot of times, right? But that's not the picture that Peter is wanting to give here about repentance. He wants us to see that repentance is something that's for our good. It's something that's for our benefit. 
These verses, I believe, can change the way we come to repentance and the way that we view repentance. To think that every time that we come for repentance, what is always coming with it is refreshment. And I don't know how often do we do that. I don't know how often do we think, man, I'm coming to repentance so that I can be refreshed. Now, whenever there's repentance, refreshment comes as well. I am coming to repent in order that I can experience refreshment again. There is joy in this feeling of refreshment. And to know that God brings this to us, that we would repent. I think Peter is saying this is because we should be frequent repenters so that we can experience and enjoy repeated refreshment from God. And then Peter has even more to say about this salvation that Jesus brings because of verse 21. Look at verse 21. It's actually kind of broken up there where he says that he may send uh, the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. What Peter is saying here is he's saying that Jesus has been sent to us and is appointed to us until the time that Jesus comes again. Peter is referencing the second coming of Christ here. So what, this is, what Peter is communicating to us is from repenting to refreshing to his returning, Jesus is doing all the work of salvation in the life of the believer. Jesus has worked in the past in your salvation. Jesus is working currently right now in your salvation. And Jesus is also going to be the one who continues to do the work of your salvation in the future as well, all the way up until the time that Jesus returns. And the point is this, is that Jesus is always the one who is working in your salvation. And Jesus will never quit the work. And that's good news for us. This is meant to be a promise that gives us great confidence of our salvation. That from day one and to the last day and every single day in between is the work of Christ that he is doing in us. And Peter concludes then this sermon by expending on what he says about Jesus. End of verse 21, look at what it says, where it says that all of these things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That Peter's basically saying, hey, you know what, everything that the prophets said, it's all found in Jesus. And it's all been done, it's all been accomplished, and it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. The first thing that Peter points to in verses 22 and 23 is that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke of. Peter is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses uh, 15 through 18, where Moses speaks about this prophet who is to come and that we are to listen to him. And Peter is saying, guess what, guys? Jesus is this prophet. He's the one who has come, and he is the one that we need to be listening to. And then in the next verse, in verse 24, Peter points to all the prophets from Samuel and all that came after him, that all that they spoke about was all about Jesus. Peter saying every single prophet spoke about Jesus. This is a big statement that Peter is making here about Jesus, showing the centrality of Jesus within the Old Testament. And then in verse 25, Peter points again to the Old Testament, this time to Genesis 22 to 18, as also being fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus is the one who is this offspring that blesses all the families of the earth. Peter is saying that that thing that God told to Abraham about his offspring, guess what? That offspring wasn't necessarily Isaac, even though it physically was, but ultimately it's pointing to the offspring of Jesus. 
And that Jesus is the one who blesses all the families of the earth. And don't lose sight of that. We in this room are also ones who receive the blessing of the salvation that comes from Jesus. And then, finally, in verse 26, Peter gives this summary statement about the sermon. That Jesus has come to bless us when we turn to him and turn from our wickedness. So I hope that you can see why this chapter is so Christ-centered. That Jesus is the center of the whole Old Testament. That the death and the resurrection in Jesus is the central point in all of human history. Jesus is the center of our salvation. Jesus is truly the center of everything. So the question comes as we conclude this morning is, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? I think Peter is asking the question, too, at the end of this sermon. Because what are you going to do with Jesus? You know, the interesting thing, as Ryan, when Ryan gets back from vacation next week and he dives into chapter 4, the amazing thing, as great as this sermon was, in chapter 4, we're going to see a lot of people reject Jesus. As great as this sermon is, they're going to reject him. But yet there is salvation, there's refreshment for those who repent and turn from their wickedness and turn to Jesus and see him as supreme over all things. So that's the call this morning. If you are here and you have never trusted in Jesus as the one who has saved you from your sins and to confess him as Lord, salvation can come today for you to trust in this Jesus and say, I'm going to turn up my sin and I'm going to turn to Jesus instead and follow him. And we say, you know what, I'm going to choose to reject the wickedness, and I'm going to choose that Jesus would be the center of everything in my life now. But can I encourage us this morning as well, let's be a people who long to see more of the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus in our lives. I mean, let's not be satisfied with what we see in Jesus right now. I mean, can I tell you, I see more of Jesus this week because of what I've seen in Acts chapter 3. And you know what I know? I know there's more of Jesus for us to always see. So let's be a people that pursue Jesus more. I am thankful for the time that I got to spend in Acts chapter 3 this week. I am blessed that this is what I was able to do with my week, is spend time in Acts chapter 3. But here's the challenge for me. I'm not preaching next week. Ryan is. So the challenge for me is, is how am I going to come to Christ next week? You know, sermon weeks are always great, as I said at the beginning, because I get to spend all this time in the Word. And I will admit that on weeks that are not sermon weeks for me, I do not spend the same amount of time in the Word as I do those weeks. And so the challenge is for me is to say, how am I in this upcoming week of all the busyness that I have on my schedule and all the things that I have on my plate, what am I going to do so that I can see Jesus as central and supreme next week as well? And so that's the challenge for me. And that's the challenge for all of us. Because here's the thing, there are a hundred things that want to grab the central and supreme place in your heart as well. It's always a fight. There's always a battle for that which will be central and supreme in us. And I pray that our passage today would remind us, no, these are the things that make Jesus central and supreme. When we see him as a great Savior, and that we come to him frequently in our repenting, 
and that we would be continual in our worshiping of him and that we would keep coming to the word and slow down. Like I've been challenged, maybe I just need to slow down in my Bible reading so that I can really meditate on it and so that I can see things that I've never seen in the word before so that I can see more of Jesus. Because here's the truth, Jesus will never ever disappoint because he will always refresh us.